Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Mark Hayes, and delighted to be with you this morning, leading you in the Word of God. I apologize for my voice and my general health. I think if I were a baby being dropped off in the nursery this morning, they're like, you're not allowed in here. But I'm not a baby being dropped off in the nursery. I've got the responsibility of leading you in the Word of God, and so we're going we're gonna to do that. And uh, the song is true. I need you every hour. It'll get us through this hour and the next one. Take out your Bibles. Turn with me to that passage that Pastor David read earlier in the service, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, as you find your place there, and as uh, we prepare to dive into the text, I want to remind you and I want to remind me that when this letter was written, it was a letter. It was a letter between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. It was personal correspondence. And when it was written, it wasn't written with chapter numbers and verses. Just kind of like if you were to sit down and write a letter to your grandma or punch out an email to her, you don't say, chapter 1, verse 1, da-da-da-da-da. You don't do that, and Paul didn't do that either. Chapter numbers and verses were added much later to aid us in finding our place. So I can say to you this morning, turn to chapter 8 and verse 1, and you and I can both find our place easily. But the benefit of having chapter numbers and verses also becomes a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage of the distraction of having them there. Again, imagine a letter written to Grandma that way. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, I love you, Grandma. Verse 2, I'm looking forward to your arrival. Verse 3, I pray you have safe travels. Verse 4, don't forget to bring the cookies. Verse 5, you can leave Fido at home. By the time Grandma gets to chapter 2, she's like, good night, I'm exhausted reading this. Well, that's some of the disadvantage, if you will. Uh, The advantage of having the chapter numbers and verses is we can find our place. Uh, The disadvantage is it often... Uh, keeps us from feeling and hearing the flow of the letter. Uh, Fortunately, our more modern translations at least have the text in paragraph form and not like the old double-column single verses, uh, which is difficult to get through. Anyways, with that in mind, I hope you're at chapter 8, verse 1. And uh, let's pick up where uh, where we left off from last Sunday morning. Paul, at this this point in the letter, he says, we want you, Corinthians, that's who he's writing to, we want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What grace did God give them? Uh, The churches in Macedonia were the churches to the north of Corinth. They were the neighboring churches. What grace did God give to them? Wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't you like to hear it? Well, he's about to tell them. We love to hear about God's grace being extended to other people. So what does he say? Back in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed or have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, if you give that really attention, you just kind of stand back and you go, wow, that is, that is something else. What grace from God did they experience? They experienced severe affliction and extreme poverty. That's what they experienced. And that was grace from God to them. And it says here, they experienced severe affliction and extreme poverty, and it resulted in abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. So affliction and joy, poverty and generosity, we don't put those together. That sounds like a conundrum to us. But I find it fascinating. I wonder how many of us think of severe troubles and crushing poverty being coupled with abundant happiness and rich generosity, and then think that to be a blessing from the Lord, a real benefit from God's hand. 
Well, the Macedonian churches that I mentioned, they were the neighboring churches. There's a little map for you. Corinth is down there in the south. Uh, the Macedonian churches are straight to the north, and uh, we would remember those churches being planted on Paul's second missionary journey. You have the church of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those are the three Macedonian churches. We know from their early history that these Macedonian churches experienced significant and severe persecution from the time they were birthed, from their very start. They experienced extreme resistance from their neighbors, both the Jewish community and the Gentile government. So they experienced both religious and political persecution, a resistance from the synagogue and from the local government. So these Macedonian churches that Paul is writing about at this point in the letter were under great pressure from external persecution. It impoverished them. They lost their jobs, their means of income. They lost their rights, their privileges, their freedoms. They were more than just being marginalized or thought of strange. They were outright mistreated, many of them imprisoned. You remember Paul was imprisoned himself in Philippi. So external persecution was the severe test that the Macedonian church faced. And it was grace to them. But external persecution that the Macedonian church has faced, that wasn't what the Corinthian church faced. What was their greatest test? Well, think through what we've been reading in this letter. Uh, the Corinthians, they didn't face great pressure from the outside in the form of persecution. What they experienced was stress and tension and internal conflict. They had internal pressures. We read the letters that we have that Paul wrote to Corinth, both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's a, a letter in the middle, the severe letter. We don't have a copy of that. But you read the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and we come to understand that their greatest test and their greatest problems were internal problems, leadership struggles, doctrinal confusion, charismatic chaos, Selfish attitudes and selfish behaviors resulting in disharmony and disunity within the church. You go back to chapter, one, or chapter 11 of the first book, and you discover they couldn't even celebrate the Lord's table well. There were people in the church that were gathering together, and they're, they're feasting and getting drunk, and there's others in the church that arrive late, and all the food is gone, and, and Paul's like, you guys can't even celebrate the Lord's table well. You guys are just plagued with conflicts. So he has to give them instruction. So the Corinthians were an internal mess and plagued with internal problems. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, let me tell you about the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia. They experienced a severe test of affliction. Well, let me ask you as we're thinking this through, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to be in the Macedonian church or the Corinthian church? Would you prefer external persecution or internal church problems? What would you sign up for? Well, if you're like me, you're like, is there a neither aisle? You know, is there a third door? Because persecution is difficult, and so is internal church conflict. It's like being asked, you know, would you rather be punched in the face or, you know, slapped in the head? I'm like, I don't want either of those. Well, that brings up the question, why does God, in His grace, because that's what it's being referred to here, I want you to know about the grace of God a severe test of affliction. And for you Corinthians, you know, it's internal conflict that you're working through. Why does God in His grace test His people? Or using the language of this second letter, why does the God of all comfort 
and the Father of mercies permit severe tests of afflictions? Why does he do it? Well, probably the most concise answer would be given by the Apostle Peter in the book that he wrote entitled 1 Peter. God provides a variety of trials, different trials to different people at different times to test and to prove the genuineness of his people's faith. Test and prove it to who? Well, not to him, but to them, to those who possess the faith. They're the ones who need to know the genuineness of it. They're the ones who need to know the strength of it and the character of it. They learn through the test that God provides, they have a real foundation they're standing on. And the foundation they're standing on is none other than the rock, Christ Jesus. A faith that can't be tested isn't a faith at all. It's like a wish, hope, or something. It's not faith. Faith will endure trials. Faith will endure tests. And God permits those and provides those and presides over those. Warren Wearsby used to say, you know, when God permits his people to go through a test, he has his hand on the dial and his eye on the clock. He knows just how long they need to be there, and he knows just how hot it needs to be. So God permits these. And faithful people who pass the test, the test that God permits, they praise God. They praise God for issuing the test and providing the grace to endure it, and as they come through, they're bettered by it. They're improved by their proven faithfulness, which the test reveals and produces. Paul or Peter also says in that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, that the test of faith also moves our faith forward. It causes us to fix our eyes on the return of Jesus Christ, looking forward to that day when faith will be sight and trials will be no more. Well, look back with me at chapter 8, verse 1. These Macedonians experienced, they experienced, let me go back, They experienced severe affliction and abundant joy, extreme poverty, and rich generosity. That's what they went through. And that joy and that generosity exceeds their circumstances. The the, the Corinthians who are being written to, they're being told about the Macedonians, but their, their test was conflict and chaos, and it resulted in repentance and refreshment. And we looked at that last week. Well, question here, why is Paul writing to the Corinthians and telling them about the Macedonians? The letters to the Corinthians, why is Paul using the Macedonian illustration? What's he hoping to do? You see, Paul wants the Corinthians to benefit from the Macedonian example and to learn from them and to follow their example without having to go through the same test they went through. The good news for you and me is we don't have to experience persecution to be joyful and generous. Oh, that should get an applause. We can learn to be joyful and generous without going through persecution. And certainly this would be true for the Corinthians as they hear of the Macedonian example and follow their lead. Paul wants the Corinthian church to benefit from them. They can walk in the same grace that the Macedonians walked in, and they can learn from them. They can walk in the same grace. They can demonstrate the same devotion. They can benefit themselves by following the examples of others who have proven their faithfulness. You know, I'm the youngest of five children. I had, the, I had the privilege of watching older siblings. And like, well, that looks like a good decision. That looks like a good path. I think I'll go down that road. And, and then there were times like, that wasn't so great. I think I'll avoid that. And so that's what's happening here. Let's, let's read the first paragraph, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means, they surprised us of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, for the privilege of taking part, of sharing in this relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you, you Corinthians, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In understanding the context of this part of the letter, the Apostle Paul and his traveling ministry team had heard about the, the dire economic straits back in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was the first church to experience great persecution. The church spread and it decimated the church both numerically and financially. And the Apostle Paul had heard about their dire economic calamity that had fallen on them. And so on Paul's third missionary journey, he's going back through all these churches that he planted and he's encouraging them to systematically save up. Week by week, contribute an offering and they would save it up, and when he finished his journey, he would go back to those churches that he encouraged to give, and he would collect the offering, and then with a, a delegation from those churches, a delegation of people, they would literally take the gift back to Jerusalem to help out their poor brothers and sisters back there that they had never met. And so that, this is the context. And, and, and we read here that as Paul travels through the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Paul knows of their situation. He knows the persecution they're under. He knows the hardship they're going through. And as he goes through those churches and he tells them about the need back in Jerusalem, we read here the Macedonians begged to be a part of this giving opportunity. Now you understand why that's grace to them. That's not coming from their old nature. <laughs> no, no, no. They hear about a need... They're, they're in extreme poverty, but they hear about a need of their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, and they beg to be a part of the opportunity. They consider it a, a real privilege to be a part of this sharing, this service to the saints, and they won't be left out. It's like, no way, you're not leaving us out of this. We're, we're going to do this. We would participate. Again, that kind of giving doesn't evidence coercion or manipulation or Paul guilting them into doing this, or applying some strange pressure to them. No, this kind of giving gives evidence of God's grace. God's grace in both the desiring of it, and then God's grace in the ability to actually put it into practice. So grace received and grace given away. From this particular paragraph, and we're going to look at the next one in just a moment, we pick up some real instruction on this grace, what I call this grace of giving, or the grace of giving. Here are three things. You can write them down if you like. First, they gave, this is the illustration of the Macedonians, they gave willingly, joyfully, according to their ability. As we just said, they wouldn't be left out of this giving opportunity. They were, they were chomping at the bit. They, they were desirous, and they gave what they could, and it was more than what was expected. Their giving was actually quite a surprise. If you looked at the, if you looked at the condition of the giver and the size of the gift, you would be shocked. You'd be like, I didn't ever expect them to give on that level. So they gave willingly, eagerly, and they gave joyfully, and they gave according to their ability. 
They didn't put in pledge cards more than what they could give. They actually just contributed, and it was more than they expected. Second, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the team, or them to the need. Boy, if I had more time this morning, and maybe we'll circle back to this, I'd like to spend more time on that second part of giving themselves first to the Lord and then to the team, to Paul and his traveling team who are going to give the gift. But here it says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. You know what that means? Their offering was unto God before it was to meet the need. That means their offering was worship before it was benevolence. They gave first to the Lord and then to the need. Their their giving was an act of worship, a worship unto the Lord. It wasn't to make them feel good about their generosity. It wasn't to bolster their ego or impress their peers. No, their giving was a fragrant offering unto God. It was to him before it was for anyone else. This reality of giving first to the Lord helps us understand their liberality and their freedom and their passion and their unrestrained giving. Third, third point. So first, they gave willingly, joyfully, according to their ability. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to the team. And then finally, good impulses. They had a desire to do it when Paul made the announcement. Good impulses are to be matched with intentional follow-through. When it comes to giving, it's not the thought that counts. Good impulses are to be matched with the intentional follow-through. We see this principle repeated in the very next paragraph. We're going to come across it in verse 11. So the desire to give, if God grants you the grace of the desire to give, is to be matched with the actual giving. The desire to give unto the Lord and to the need of others is grace to you. Your old nature doesn't have those generous impulses. No, our old nature is selfish and prideful. And so if God gives you the desire to give and the ability to follow through, that is grace to you. And, and we understand this. It would be like, you know, it'd be like you coming home from work and saying to your wife, you know, hey, I thought about buying you flowers, but I didn't. Or, you know, I, I thought about taking you on a cruise this year for your anniversary, but I'm not going to buy tickets and don't really plan on it. You know, we, we get that. Or telling your kids, I thought about buying you a bike for the birthday, but I didn't. What do you think of that? So the Corinthians had heard about this giving opportunity, just like the Macedonians did. And the Macedonians were pumped about it. They're like, hey, we're not going to be left out of this. We're going to participate. The Corinthians had heard that same message. And now Paul is writing back to them. I think it's because of their internal conflict. They were not following through. They're giving. They'd kind of forgotten that in the midst of all their struggles. They're fighting over leaders and all sorts of crazy stuff going on there. And so Paul's writing them and saying, hey, I want to remind you of what you knew about and God had given you a desire for, I want you to follow through on this. So let's look at the next paragraph. We've got just a few minutes left. And uh, let's, uh, let's look at the next paragraph because more instruction follows here. A verse, let's go back to verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command. So he's not commanding them. This is not a mandate. He's certainly not guilting them. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's remarkable. Paul's like, we thought the Macedonians were something. Let's not forget about Christ, who impoverished himself. And he's not thinking about his earthly existence. He's thinking about the fact that Jesus had a pre-incarnate state of immeasurable glory and pleasure and wealth with his heavenly Father. He takes on flesh and becomes a man and is impoverished all the way to the point of the cross so that you and I might be incredibly enriched with blessings that we've not begun to comprehend. We are blessed today with the forgiveness of sins. We're blessed today with the fact that we've been joined to God through Jesus Christ. We're blessed today with promises and guarantees. We're blessed today with the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. These are deposits. What is it? The riches that await us, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, but the riches that await us, we cannot begin to comprehend. And so Paul is using, hey, the Macedonians gave quite remarkably, let's not forget Jesus Christ who impoverished himself, so that you and I might be enriched. He goes on on verse 10, and in this matter I give my judgment, this, this generosity benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. He's back in that same principle. So, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing of it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be equality or fairness. As it is written, he quotes the Old Testament here, the people picking up manna, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered Little had no lack. All right, what instruction do we add here? Uh, I've got four here, and I'll go through them quickly so we can celebrate the Lord's table together. Here they are. Giving is an act of grace, verse 7. Giving is an act of grace. I want you to excel in this this grace as well. Verse 8, giving is a demonstration of love. Uh, The Macedonians' giving was a matter of worship, and it demonstrated their love for the Lord, and they gave generously. And so giving is not only an act of grace, something that God supplies and enables, but giving is a demonstration of love or devotion to the Lord. Third, Jesus Christ is the supreme example of self-giving love. We see that in verse 9. Again, we thought the Macedonians were impressive. It doesn't compare with the gift of Jesus. His gift will never be surpassed, nor will his riches ever be exhausted. And then verse 10, Giving benefits the giver as well as the recipient. He says, man, this this benefits you. For you to experience the grace of God and the desire to give and then in the follow-through, man, that's grace to you. This benefits you as well as those who are in need. So the the, the benefits go multi-directions, if you will. And then verse 11 through 15, I've summed up with this. Giving is for sharing blessings, not for creating burdens. That's That's a big point. Uh, within the context of a church, uh, there are people who can give a lot and people who give a little, and God knows all of that. And God sees the giver, and he's pleased with the gift, and it shows their love and devotion. It's an act of grace, but, but uh, it's, not for, it's not for crushing people. It's for sharing blessings and not creating burdens. He doesn't want people, he doesn't want the Corinthians nor the Macedonians to be impoverished so that the church in Jerusalem might be flourish. No, he, just, he wants them to share in one another's needs. 
And God is the one who provides the resources for that. All right, so here, here's the message. We've walked through, you know, the first paragraph and now the second paragraph. Uh, you know, before we celebrate the Lord's table together, as I was thinking this through and reading this passage with you this past week, uh, a year and a half ago, a little better than a year and a half ago, uh, the elders of this church laid out the preaching roadmap. Uh, laid out uh, the preaching roadmap, the books of the Bible, and a few topical series that we we're going to cover as a congregation. And uh, that roadmap for the preaching is on my whiteboard in my office, and I've been kind of following that through. And, and um, matter of fact, as the elders meet, our next meeting, we talk about the balance of this year, and we talk about the preaching for 2025. It's, it's on our agenda. But here's what I'm getting at. There's no way that a year and a half ago, when we planned out the preaching roadmap, we would have known that we would be on this text this morning. And I find it fascinating that on this past Wednesday, we had a motion at a member meeting, a motion that called for generous giving toward the expansion of this ministry for meeting immediate ministry needs. Do you find that fascinating? You know, maybe, not, maybe it's not falling on you like it is falling on me. But I'm like, if we were really sharp, you know, a year and a half ago, we could have mapped it all out. And said, oh, yeah, this will converge right nicely on this Sunday. We're just not that sharp. God's awesome. We're not very awesome. So on our radar as a church, this past Wednesday night at a member meeting, on our radar is a $4 million facility expansion. $4 million. You hear my voice change there? I don't know if that's sickness or just shock, but think we can do it? No, silly us. What are we thinking? Think we can do it? No. If we thought we could do it, we would boast in our ability. And then when we did it, we'd take all the credit. Our old nature loves to do that. And that's the kind of people we used to be. So do you think we can do it? No. Do we think God can pull it off? Oh, yeah, without question. I, I have diminishing confidence in my abilities. I probably had more confidence in my abilities 30 years ago. But I have diminishing confidence in my abilities. According to this letter, I'm just a clay pot. Pretty weak and pretty fragile. But... The surpassing power belongs to God. I have increasing confidence in God's ability. So, do you think we can do it? No. Do you think God can pull it off without question? Now, here's a couple questions that follow that up. Do we believe that God can do it through us? Not apart from us, but through us. Well, if God were actually to do that through us, that would be grace to us. That would be like participating in a miracle. That'd be like participating in something that God can do through us as we just prayerfully think this through and contribute according to our means in ways that we can. Here's, here's probably the million-dollar question, and I'll leave this with, uh, with you. Do we think God wants us to do it? That's a biggie. Does God want us to do it? Does God want us to give sacrificially to this end? Don't you love the freedom and the responsibility that God gives us to decide? He's not going to lightning bolt that answer. 
We don't, we don't have a prophet, a Moses in the midst who's going to say, this is, this is it. No, no, we're going to decide this together as a congregation. Don't you love the freedom and the responsibility to decide? And God using that as a, something for a church community to work through as they mature in faith? You know, I, I leave this morning after the second service. Um, I think my body needs a lot more vitamin D than it's getting. And uh, so I, I leave this morning after second service to go participate in a missions conference down in Florida, Venice, Florida. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased they're not hosting it in Minot, North Dakota. But um, so I, I leave today. I've got to be down there tomorrow night. We're driving down, so Lord willing, we'll get down there. And, um, but I'll, I'll be back later this month. And I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to meeting with the leaders of this church, the elders, the servant administration team on, on February 19th, and, um, and to see uh, and to talk about our direction forward. You know, after the member meeting, we said, what we do now is we pray. We pray as a congregation. There was support to do this. There was overwhelming support to do this. There was some understandable hesitancy. We understand that. So, so we're praying about this, and, and I'm looking forward to getting back and talking about our steps forward. But here's what's exciting. The direction we take as we seek to expand the advancement of the gospel, and as we seek to disciple the next generation, we have a ton of kids here at this church. They won't be kids forever. We have two more baby announcements that were made this week. You know, the, the nursery is just burgeoning. And those kids are kids now. They won't be kids forever. And we have an opportunity to advance the gospel. We have an opportunity to disciple the next generation. And we have an opportunity to build up the church. However our path forward, it's going to be a giving opportunity. Yes. I've been through so many of these with you. I've been through so many of them. So, so no matter the path we take, it's going to be a giving opportunity. And this is grace to us. And it's an opportunity to excel in grace. It's an opportunity to deepen our devotion and to express our love in a tangible way. It's an opportunity for personal growth and discipleship, following the example of Jesus. When we give first to the Lord and in the needs of others, we all benefit. And when we participate together and when we joyfully give according to our ability, sharing from our abundance, we are blessed and we become a blessing. Who doesn't want to miss out on that? So, so we'll meet as a leadership team later this month, and we'll come forward with plans that here's our steps forward. And uh, we all as a congregation need to be prayerful about that. But, man, a giving opportunity? A giving opportunity? Whatever that looks like? And there's grace to us. It'll be good for us. No matter which way we go, it'll be opportunity. Well, let's, let's close our service. We've got a few minutes left. Let's close our service by remembering the gift of Jesus Christ uh, and the, the fact that he was impoverished for our great wealth. And uh, we've got some gentlemen who are going to help distribute the elements of the table this morning. As I have just a, a brief word of prayer, if you'd come forward and help me distribute these, I'd be appreciative. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love toward us that you displayed in giving, giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we were broken we were sinful, we were selfish and prideful, and yet you set your affection upon us. We had been deeply damaged by the fall. Uh, we had been crushed under the, the weight of sin, but Christ came and impoverished himself, ultimately all the way to the cross. He laid aside the glories of heaven, 
the, the pageantry, if you will, of being your eternal son. And he took on flesh for the purpose of being a servant, went to the cross, bore our sins away, took on death and defeated it through his powerful resurrection. And now he gives. He gives his victory. He gives salvation. He gives forgiveness. He gives acceptance. He gives himself. What a gift he is. What a gift you've given to us. And through accepting him, we, we are enriched beyond measure, beyond what we can begin to now fathom. Father, we've been graced and blessed with the reminder of that this morning from the Scripture, and graced and blessed from the instruction to the Corinthians and the, the example of the Macedonians. But Father, we gather around this table specifically, specifically to remember Jesus. That's what we're here for, to remember the gift that he is to us, to partake of the bread and remember his body which was broken, and to partake of the blood and remember that it was his blood shed for us. We thank you for Jesus. We remember him today. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this table is open for you to participate with us. In just a moment, these gentlemen are going to stand down front, and you can make your way forward. I want to encourage you to take both of the cups, and the bottom cup is the bread. But again, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and have received God's love and know the grace of God, then this table is for you and I to remember him. Uh, if, as you come out, just uh, if, if you'd move toward the center, wherever you are, not completely to the center, but just where you're at, move toward the center to the closest aisle, and then just kind of circle back around. That'll help us with the, kind of the flow of traffic, if you will. Gentlemen, if you take these and stand down front, and as they find their place, and when they find their place, if you'd come and receive that, that would be wonderful. frequently read from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He's literally giving the church instruction on how to partake of the Lord's table together. And um, 
again, they were, they were having conflict with this even as uh, they had turned the Lord's table into a large love feast. And people were coming early and they were feasting and getting drunk. And some of the uh, less economically privileged members of the congregation would show up later at the end of their service, at the end of their workday. And they would get to the gathering of the church and, boy, there's a big meal that had already taken place. And some had been feasting and drunk and they weren't getting anything. And Paul provides the correction. He says, that's crazy. You guys aren't celebrating the Lord's table at all. You're not even considering the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You've you've lost this. And so he provides this simple instruction. He says, for I received from the Lord... What I passed on to you on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's partake of this bread as we remember Jesus Christ and his body broken for us. He goes on to say, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup as we remember Jesus. Heavenly Father, again, we we remind ourselves and we remember Jesus here around this table. His body broken, his blood poured out. And Father, we're also reminded that as we partake of this together... It provides us another giving opportunity. When we celebrate the Lord's table, we have a benevolent offering that we, that we contribute to, and a team here uses it to meet real needs within the church family. And I, I thank you for your generosity to us, which is immeasurable, and I thank you for the generosity of this congregation as it contributes. Father, we thank you that you supply all that we need in every situation that we're in to do your will and to accomplish the work that you set out for us to do. Your hand is never short. And so we're grateful for that. We pray that we keep our eyes fixed on you, following the example of Jesus, and continue to walk in the grace that you supply us. Bless now this time and our fellowship, our continued fellowship this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.